I'm not a veterinarian. I'm a customer service provider. Like I just provide a service to my client and everything rides on that positive interaction. Because if that positive interaction isn't there, then they're going to leave my practice and I'm not going to be able to feed my family. Welcome back to Vet Vet Life. This week, we're going back in the archives to the episode with Dr. Cody Creelman. At the time of recording, Cody was very active on YouTube as he shared his life as a large animal vet. Since then, he has made a career pivot to small animal medicine and opened his own practice. Congratulations, by the way, Cody, which adds a whole new layer to this conversation. So in this episode, Cody and I dive into the life and writings of Alf White, also known as James Harriet. And we ask the question, are the days of James Harriet really a bygone era? The answer might just surprise you. So with that, let's jump into my conversation with Dr. Cody Creelman. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And why don't we just let people know a little bit about who you are before we get rolling into everything. So um, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Yeah, so my name is Dr. Cody Krillman. I'm a beef cattle veterinarian in Airdrie, Alberta, Canada. I run a seven veterinarian beef cattle only practice. So cow-calf and feedlot. My clientele ranges across Western Canada. So the majority of my clientele is in that Calgary area, about a hundred mile radius. And they are farmers and ranchers. They would have anywhere from 30 cows, a small kind of boutique operation, all the way up to 30,000 cows. My daily life is just spent out in the field as a field vet. And I am cutting deads, doing postmortems, fixing baby calf broken legs, pulling calves, doing C-sections, preg testing, semen testing, just the whole gambit of beef cattle medicine. And added on top of that, I'm also a consulting vet as well. My practice has a few different components as well. We also do a significant amount of research for pharmaceutical companies and universities, private companies like that. And then we're also part of a distributed teaching hospital where I have students coming with me on the road learning how to be cow vets, so training the next generation, and that's been quite the experience. And then on top of that, I also have another business called Mosaic Veterinary Partners, where we purchase and manage mixed animal practices in rural Canada. So we go in and we purchase and manage these these practices, support the veterinarians, elevate the level of medicine, and just provide a good level of support. So that's what keeps me busy. And then on top of that, I also have the whole social media thing as well. Uh, I've been vlogging for almost three years. And my true social media journey kind of started in 2012 when I was just trying to market my veterinary services for my practice. So yeah, that is a lot on your plate then. And I feel like that gives you a really good basis to talk about what we have today, which is like the history of veterinary medicine and this whole idea of the romantic ideals of James Harriet's writings. But before we get into that, um, I feel like it'd be a good idea to give the people basic history of what is veterinary medicine, where did it come from, kind of how did we get to where we are now. Um, do you want to go or do you want me to go? Um, I'll certainly give it a go. Yeah, so go I, for it. I love thinking about the the history of veterinary medicine. I'm passionate about all aspects of veterinary medicine, including the history and the future and the politics and the students and the, the medical side. 
And when I was a pre-vet and veterinary student, and even still now, I always loved getting my hands on every single historical text and reference that I could and reading about where our profession came from. I love to to think about, you know, how we got here and where we're going. And that kind of ties back into that James Harriet thing. So even what we're thinking about as as vets and what we're doing now in 50, 60, 70 years, I think people are going to look back at that with a certain degree of nostalgia. And I just it's uh, one of the things that that I love doing that daily documentation with my videos and my Instagram that this kind of digital footprint is is it's this kind of modern day version of what Harriet was doing when he was just keeping in his diary all of his daily adventures and putting that out to the world. And now we have the opportunity to do that. And it seems so, it doesn't seem as special or as nostalgic when you're in the moment as I'm sure it didn't seem very special or nostalgic in the moment when he was doing it. But man, when when I'm reading through his books or when I'm reading through historical texts, I love just kind of putting myself back in time and trying to trying to see what, veterinary medicine was like back in the day. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good um, viewpoint on how everything kind of started that right now, what we're kind of what we do, it seems kind of monotonous and boring. But in like what, 100 years or so, not even that they'll, they'll have your vlogs, they'll have all of this like Instagram and blogs that people are writing this digital footprint, as you said, about what veterinary medicine look like right now. And who knows what it's going to look like in, in the future. I think you mentioned in one of your recent podcasts um, just how you were like some of the writings that they had for treatments for things were so barbaric. And are that is that what they're going to think about what we do nowadays? Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. I think some one of my professors had quoted that something like 90% of what you're learning now will be proven wrong at some time in the future. And when I read back at some of the different things, I had recently done a podcast on the treatment of lungworm. And it was basically locking your animals up in a barn and fumigating them with this combination of uh, chlorine gas and turpentine gas and tobacco smoke uh, to the point where the handler couldn't even handle it anymore. So they'd actually have a person in there enduring it with them. And the course of treatment was as long as the human in with the animals could stand it for. And then he would open the door and let the animals out. And the the treatment was then they would be coughing so hard that they would cough the lungworms out. And this is a reference from 1915. And some of the, you know, some of those things are, are just so crazy to think about and and somewhat barbaric. But that's what our medicine is going to seem like in 100 years to people who are watching my vlogs or reading textbooks. They're just not even going to believe that uh, how how minimal we treated some of our patients. It's kind of sad to think about, but we do the best that we can. Definitely, definitely doing what the best that we can with what we have. And of course, that is what medicine is. It is an art form and it's practice. That's why we call it that. That's right. Yes, it's a continual evolution of that. And and it has been quite the evolution. You know, the, the original historical context around veterinary medicine was designed around the, the animals of draft and the animals of transportation and the animals of war. Uh, the, the historical text of, of the ancient times, 
were quite detailed in, in treating a variety of different diseases, treating in quotations, but at least identifying and trying to quantify and address those things. So in ancient India, how they would address different uh, diseases that elephants had or that horses had. And it really wasn't until the early 1900s that there was any sort of uh, great detail put on to the other farm animal species and ironically one of the last species or I guess set of species that veterinary medicine paid attention to was the companion animals the dogs and cats were not ever considered in the vast majority of veterinary medicine I kind of had a little bit of a revelation when I was reading I think it was Dr. Pohl's autobiography and I think Dr. Pohl went through went through university in like the 40s or 50s, uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands. And he actually didn't even learn anything about small animal medicine. It wasn't part of the curriculum, even within that sort of recent history. So veterinarians out in practice may not have even had learned anything about dog or cat medicine because they just weren't deemed important animals to to put resources in uh, horses and cows certainly because those that's where your food came from and that's where your draft power came from and your transportation came from but for most of human civilization a dog or a cat was quite expendable and now fast forward to to the present time Certainly, the, the medicine for companion animal is quite a bit more advanced in terms of the resources that we have, the, the types of things that we can do treating cancers and doing MRIs and all of these fancy things. That's so incredibly recent. Yeah, definitely. Like looking back at the, the age when um, James Harriet or Alf White was his real name, when he was in vet school, which was in Glasgow um, back in the 30s. Uh, the main animal that they were treating were horses. So the main animal they were taught were horses, cattle, these farm animals. And they maybe had a thing or two about dogs because, you know, dogs exist on a farm and whatnot. But they they literally had no classes about cats. Like, it just was not a thing (laughs) at all. And this is in the 30s. And nowadays... The first animals we learn, like in the in my courses, the first main course we had was called the dog and cat course. And then right. after that, we moved to farm animal and equine and exotics. But our core animals, like the model animal that we use in our courses is the dog. And then we move to the cat and we say, this is what's different from the dog. And then we move to the horse and we say, this is what's different from the dog and so on and so forth. But so much has changed in such a short span of time. Like this is this is a lifetime, if you think about it. Like that's a really short amount of time. Yes, in the grand scheme of things, an extremely short time. And even just in the history of of what formalized veterinary medicine is, what are we two? Was it two hundred and three years ago when the first vet school opened? That's not very long ago either, right? Yeah, like seventeen sixty one is when the first vet school in France was created. So that it's like that is a very short amount of time ago that we were actually getting an organized kind of this is how veterinary medicine is done formula. Yeah. And one of the things that I always think about, too, in terms of where the profession is today and not to get pessimistic, but but there is a lot of negativity around the profession, a lot of burnout, a lot of compassion fatigue and some of that. I just always worry because the 
the entirety of veterinary medicine kind of seems more reactionary as opposed to thoughtful. So this kind of thoughtful approach to how we should be supporting young veterinarians, how we should be mentoring them, how should we be approaching cases? I think all of it has just kind of been very reactionary to the, the, the demands put on them. When I think about my, my vet buying group going out into rural mixed practice, uh, that the, these practices that have been in these areas are are only 40 or 50 years and before that there was absolutely no veterinary care once again a very short amount of time and these practitioners came out and they just saw these areas and identified these areas of need and went into practice but not a lot of thoughtfulness went into the business aspect of it, the mentorship aspect of it, the succession plan aspect of it, uh, just being more reactionary and not really thinking about it. And one of the things that terrifies me so much is is actually veterinary medicine's modeling behind human medicine. So there's the the uh, uh, Doctor Z Dog MD. Have you come across? his content? Um, I don't think I have yet, but now I will definitely be looking him up. <laughs> yeah, so he's a, he, he's a doctor. He's in Vegas right now. He was a practicing doctor. I believe he was in the ER. His dad was a doctor, was originally from India, and he was practicing, and he just got so burnt out and so frustrated with the human system, the, the way that the medical system is in the U.S., and he is trying to shift that away to a new health concept, to health 3.0, to shift it away from how medicine is being practiced because it's just not working. There's not as much human connection. There isn't, you know, this this level of, of patient engagement, doing things more to not get sued as opposed to what's best for the patient in terms of emotional support. Financial support, you know, the, the the financial side of the human medical system is completely turned upside down. It, it's uh, kind of in a scary state. But in veterinary medicine, and I don't want to throw small animal under the bus, but small animal medicine is modeling after this health 2.0, this, this healthcare system that some doctors are saying doesn't work and we need to shift towards something different altogether, something more thoughtful. And I just really worry about the profession chasing after human medicine when human medicine, if, if we look at it, um, probably isn't doing the best job either. Like if, if I ask you the question, do you think the, the human healthcare system is, is perfect right now, what would you say? Oh, heck no. <laughs> exactly. So why do we put them on such a pedestal for us modeling what our system should look like? It's probably because they came before us a little bit there. So right. we're, we're constantly chasing them. Just, just because there's chron a little bit of chron uh, chronological order doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing it right. It's like the lemmings. Just because the lemmings in front of you jumped off the cliff doesn't mean we need to jump off the cliff either. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with my Mosaic Veterinary Partners is to try to disrupt the model and be able to do things in a more thoughtful manner to mentor and support these practices in such a way that that it's in a, a real thoughtful sort of perspective for what fits for us what fit, 
fits for us as veterinarians. We don't need human medicine telling us how we're supposed to be doing things because when we look at human medicine, it, it's a, an absolute disaster. And why would we want any part of that? Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Venex. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession. Much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our Vetex community. The Thrive Community is a race-accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of that Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. Yeah, I hadn't even really thought about the whole connection between the human medicine side of things. But talking about mentorship and just thinking about, I feel like in vet med, we still have a long ways to go. But compared to like the days of Alf White or something, um, it's, it's a whole different environment that new graduates are being launched into. Though I feel like I don't know what that would have looked like in Canada or the U.S., but um, <clears throat> like in the U.K. at least, the we get a lot, we get a fair amount of real-world experience before we're launched out into the real world. Um, at least, like I wrote here, that back in the days when Alf was in vet school in their final year, which was a five-year program, they were basically assigned to different practices in the area where they would go out and they would hone their their practical skills. And nowadays, I think that's more akin to our rotational schedule that you get in your final year or in the UK where you're basically required to do 26 weeks of EMS extramural studies, which is kind of like shadowing, but not because you're basically allowed to do whatever um, the veterinarian that you're working with allows you, sees that you're fit to do and you're constantly like watched while you do it. So by the time you are hitting final year, you've done at least 13 weeks of this real world kind of experience. You've gotten mentorship in that sort of sense. And so when you graduate, you're rather prepared. But in the days of like Alf, when he graduated, it was not all roses and cherries. And um, a lot of the vets were kind of launched into the deep end. Um, Sure, they've gotten some of this real world experience in their their final year. But when they're actually asked to be a vet, like for one thing there were there were no jobs it was a very discouraging time in the early 40s um, to be a vet to the point where like vet students or new graduates they had to advertise they were like i i will work for free just give me boarding and some food and i will be your veterinarian in your practice and like that that kind that would really scare me to be to know i was graduating into that where nowadays I feel like when I'm graduating, I'm like, okay, there's there's this new idea about mentorship and just the fact that there are jobs now. I mean, um, obviously you have a little bit more insight into that um, with the work that you do. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's. I, I think 
I think there still is some of that for sure. I I certainly know my partners, so I have uh, two partners within my Calvet practice, and both of them are at the end of their career. And they certainly talk about the stories of their first uh, their first summer out in practice, and it was very common that the new graduate would come into the new practice and the older practitioner would take off for the summertime and it was the practice was theirs now and it was just up to them to figure it out and they didn't they didn't have any idea what they were doing um from from my perspective you know there, there's a couple different teaching models here in canada so we have the distributed teaching hospital network where uh like the university of calgary those students in their final year, they're out in clinical environments and private practices for that entire year. So they do get to see quite a bit. And then the, the university that I went to, it had a teaching hospital. So we certainly had externships uh, throughout that. But the majority of the work we were doing was inside a teaching hospital environment. But that said, so I'm I'm not a new grad, but I'm, I'm certainly not an, an old fogey. Uh, there was a lot of things that I also had to figure out on my own. So the first uterine prolapse that I ever saw was the one I did. The first C-section that I ever saw was the one I did. The first dienucleation that I ever saw was the one that I did. Uh, the first bloat surgery, it just goes on and on and on. So as, as much as I saw and was well prepared and confident for going out into practice, and, and I did have a, a very good support system within my practice, uh, yeah, there's still always there's still always a large proportion of that kind of learning on the job, and it it I, it is encouraging. I do see lots of practices that are are developing formalized mentorship programs that uh, have dedicated human resources to to that mentorship to make sure they're checking off the boxes to make sure that they're feeling supported. But when you were talking about the wages. Um, you know, has it has it really gotten that much better? I I know from some of the message boards in the U.S. Depending on the geography, certainly there's pockets uh, across the U.S. where the wage is is a little bit higher. But when I'm hearing vets from the Midwest talking about what their starting wage was, it basically is board and housing or right it's it's just board and and how a place to sleep they're being offered 35,000 45,000 and from what i can understand in the uk i i'm not sure if it's that much better there's there's certainly a huge wage gap in comparison to some of the other professions like dentistry and human medicine so is is it really that much better that's about all you by the time you service your student loans um, are you left with much more than paying for where you're going to sleep and uh, a little bit of food? I, I don't think it's changed too much. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> it's Thank not, you. It's not, de- it's not depressing because there is amazing opportunities out there. You just have to be willing to go where the work is. Um, I guess I get a little bit frustrated with veterinarians talking about some of their the lower wages, and certainly there's family considerations. There's a thousand different considerations, but there is places across the world where you can try to narrow that that wage discrepancy if you're willing to move. You know, somebody who wants to be a beef cattle veterinarian and is frustrated because farmers won't pay in their in their geography, or the practitioner just can't simply can't afford to to pay them a decent wage you you have to go where the cows are i don't live where i live because uh 
because I think that it's the most spectacular place in the world. I followed the cows. I followed the work. And the the opportunities as a business person are absolutely endless. Uh, as an associate, you know certainly you you can you can have a, a good life and pay off your student loans and and have a very respectable, honest life. But uh, if you're if you're willing to think outside of the box and invest into practices and uh, market your veterinary services, create a personal brand, chase all these different opportunities, the sky's the limit. Like I'm, I'm very, very happy with where my, where my career has gone thus far. And that's all because of my education. So as a new graduate, everyone kind of thinks about, okay, I'm going to go out into practice and I'm going to get my head down. I'm going to just going to work really, really hard. But I don't know. Sometimes it seems that just working as a veterinarian isn't going to be enough to sustain yourself. But I guess, would you say that really just depends on your goals and what you have envisioned for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So you certainly need to, I think there needs to be a lot more focus on self-awareness and identifying what are the things that you need and you want and where you want to be and and knowing those and reverse engineering the steps that you need to take to be able to get there. I, I think you need to be able to have that clear vision of that endpoint and then figuring the rest out from there. And so then... Um going back to this whole idea of like the James Harriet romanticized kind of thing. Do you feel like there's a lot of people who look at large animal medicine through that lens and maybe they're missing something? Um, I'm not sure. It, uh, it, it's an, it's a very interesting field for sure in terms of that. Um, uh, you know, the one thing that I, that I love so much about this type of practice is isn't necessarily the medicine, it's the people. And that's what drove me towards beef cattle medicine as opposed to, to mixed animal or small animal medicine is I just really, really love uh, dealing with farmers and ranchers every single day. That's that's what the appeal is to me. And I think that's that even goes kind of broader in terms of just this overall fulfillment of yourself as a veterinarian as well. I think, you know, for, and I don't want to categorize anybody, but I think we go into this profession because of the love of the animal, right? We just, we really love animals. Like in my photo album growing up, every single picture of me was with a cat or a dog or a horse or a cow. And, and that was just something that I loved so much. And I chased veterinary medicine partly because of that. But I think when you get out into practice, there's this kind of expectation for you to have this, this, um, you know, this self-worth, this, um, this expectation of this level of gratitude to be given to you from all of these cool things that you're doing as a medical professional. And I think what's missing and why there's, there's so much negativity within the profession is people not realizing that, that human connection and how important that is. Um, you know, I can save a cow's life and she's just as liable to chase me and kick me after I'm done saving her life. I can perform the most greatest heroics uh, ever possible, ever ever done by a veterinarian and, and 
if I'm looking towards the cow to get that gratification from her, it's just not going to happen. I get all of my gratification from the people that I work with. And I think that's what speaks to me so powerfully in in the James Harriet novels. It's not so much the the medicine and the nostalgia. It's if you if you really read between the lines, it's all about human connection. It was the stories about the people. It wasn't the stories about about the specific medicine or the the amazing things that he did to those animals. Yeah, that just that so much of like part of the reason I feel people were drawn into the books was because, like, sure, like, it talks about the Yorkshire Dales and how beautiful and his imagery is absolutely amazing. And now that I've lived over in the UK, I can say, yes, it actually does look like that. But so much of his stories were, they involved the people, they involved the connections and everything that happened there. And I feel like that's what drew in a lot of the readers. And then they saw this really cool side of veterinary medicine. That's right. And now when I see... I guess people reflecting on their practice and message boards and on Facebook pages and stuff like that and in individual conversations, it's almost like the veterinarian is is in battle with the client and talking about, you know, this client came in and gave them this trouble. And for example, so here's it. Here's an example. So a, a veterinarian posted on a, a message board about a case where a former client had lost the the radiographs for a horse that she owned and she had moved away and she had started off saying like you know we lost everything in the recent fire it was some geographical fire that had happened and i guess this practice was caught up in it as well she lost everything um but she needs to get a hold of of her horse's radiographs for for whatever reason and the vet got on the message board and kind of was like, hey, l- listen to this. Listen listen to what this person is asking of me. They're asking for their horse's radiographs, and they, uh, they left my practice with a $300 bill that I, had to, that I had to write off, and this was three years ago. And all of these vets got on in, in the comments saying, like, talking about how terrible this client was and you know make, make her pay make her pay and they just wanted to crucify this client and I couldn't keep my mouth shut and I just said like you guys what is the point like you're you're just so focused down on this negativity what why aren't these stories of the these positive interactions why aren't these alf white stories being told it seems like all of the stories that i see are are based around negative google reviews and not positive google reviews and negative client interactions and and it just it frust, frustrates me to no end to see just kind of this constant client bashing because the clients are everything the clients are are what's going to make you happy in practice Oh, gosh, that's really, that's kind of disheartening to hear. But yeah, just like, uh, I guess there was a talk that I recently was at, and the speaker was kind of talking about, um, it was it was a mental kind of health talk, but it talked about this idea where when something bad happens in practice, we either fight, flight, or flock. And I feel like those veterinarians were definitely flocking, which means like if something not necessarily bad, but downhardening maybe happens. They go to someone else and they're like, oh, isn't this person terrible? And then they get someone else to be like, yeah, that person's terrible. And then it's just like makes you feel better because other people are agreeing with you. 
uh, in in the short term, but in the long term, it creates a culture of of toxic negativity. It permeates through your entire clinic, where you have your receptionist talking that way, and your vet techs talking that way, and the new vet mm-hmm. coming in falls into that pattern. Precisely, and, yeah. It's and, like this negative cycle, and so it's like, how do you stop the cycle and be the person who actually says, you know what, like that's not why we're in this profession at all. It and what good can come of it there's there's absolutely nothing positive that can come out of that that type of action you know there's a couple parallels so within my own practice um i i am always i always compare how my practice treats our clients in comparison to how i'm treated as a customer in the rest of the service industry because that's all we are and i think that's what's forgotten and that's one of the bad things that we picked up from the human medicine side that that not recognizing that we're not in the that that we are in the customer service business and people forget that because the the human doctors forgot that the human doctors forgot about that because of how that uh how the payment model works so when you are a human doctor and you treat somebody poorly or negatively, you're not friendly, you don't provide a great customer service experience, what happens? You still get paid. You get paid by the insurance company in Canada. You get paid by the government. You still get paid. So it, it is a, a, this positive feedback loop that allows you to act as, as terrible as you want and people still have to come back to you. There's, they're not choosing a different hospital because the, the customer service is, is terrible. In, in my practice, you know, it's, it's, I view it as the complete opposite. That's all I am. I'm not, a, I'm not a veterinarian. I'm a customer service provider. Like I just provide a service to my client and everything rides on that positive interaction. It, everything does. Because if that positive interaction isn't there, then they're going to leave my practice and I'm not going to be able to feed my family. And when I go into the world, I'm always extremely disappointed in, in just customer service in general because I think that we provide exceptional customer service. And I always have kind of have this un, unofficial mantra within our practice that that exceptional customer service buys you uh, a little bit of leeway on the next time you screw up. So like with a lot of my clients, unfortunately, I feel like I could, I could go and, and do bad medicine for the next five years and they would still come back to me because I've built up all of this goodwill through all of this amazing customer service that we do. Like we bend over backwards for our clients. We love our clients. They're our family. They're our friends. Um, and, and I never get to see that. So when you have that toxic culture within a veterinary practice, they're, they're kind of falling in line with, with the human model that you can treat a, a client, you can treat a patient as poorly as you want, and at the end of the day, you're still going to get paid. And they just don't recognize. And as a business owner, that terrifies me to think that my staff would be representing my brand and my business in a, in a negative light. And if they're talking about that like that to their friends or their, the anonymous veterinarians on Facebook, just imagine how they're talking about those clients to their spouses, how they're talking about those clients to, their, mm-hmm. to the other vet, veterinarians in the practice, how much backroom talking is going on uh, with, with the lay staff. It just it it just can't turn out well no and then like then it makes you think like okay then how do they treat the other vets in the practice 
Yeah, that's just like, ah, negative cycles everywhere. Exactly. And it's nobody could argue with me that the, the state of veterinary medicine in a lot of practices is in a very poor place. You know, we'll let the suicide rate speak for itself. There's a reason for that. Yeah, I think it's it's currently like what one in four right now. But I I heard a really good comment on that, and it's like sure there there is this one in four, which is a very high rate. But what are we doing about the other three who are doing really well? How do we encourage them? How do we um, keep whatever's happening for them going to help benefit the that one out of four? Yeah, absolutely. But um, you know, negative conversation, toxic conversation around. Client bashing is not the way to do it. Definitely not, yeah. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also, leaving a review of the show on iTunes, we greatly appreciate it because, again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Vet Life. <laughs>